What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, resources and remdesivir as COVID-19 hits new spikes in the U.S. Health officials and other Americans are looking to the founder of Instagram for COVID data. Kevin Systrom's online case tracker, RT.Live, is getting some attention. This site is a public good. It's not meant to be a new company. It's not meant to be anything other than a resource for people to come and understand how the virus is spreading near them. And Gilead has priced remdesivir, a drug that's so far proven to effectively treat coronavirus patients. The drugmaker CEO, Daniel O'Day, says despite concerns, this price is right. Most importantly, I think the way that we price this assures that patients will have access to this medicine, regardless of how you're covered or not covered in the United States. Those stories and advertisers unfriending Facebook. It's Monday, June 29th. 2020. Four day week, four shortened days because the they are getting shorter. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. But we are getting to the end of the month, and that's when we start to really take notice of what's been happening. The declines that we saw on Friday pushed both the Dow and the S&P 500 into negative territory for the month of June. If they want to make that up, they've got two trading sessions left before we get to July. So over the next two days, the Dow would have to make up 1.5% if it wants to be positive for the month of June. S&P would have to be up by about 1%. 1.2 percent. The Nasdaq is in positive territory for this month. It's up by 2.8 percent. So if it can hold on to that just for the next two sessions, you are going to see the Nasdaq up for the third month in a row. The journal has an interesting piece, I think, again today. Uh, and I think Dr. Scott Gottlieb ha- is going to have some interesting things to say, too, in terms of, of just trying to put it in perspective, because if all you read were the headlines, you'd be scared to death. And, and ready to go, you know, bury your head again in, in the sand. And I, I just, I'm not sure that the economy, I, I'm not sure that's going to uh, be what happens, you know. I will say that there was some eye-opening stuff that happened over the weekend, not just in terms of watching the cases, but hearing on Friday the state of New Jersey, what their plans are for school in the fall. Protecting everyone continues to be our top priority. The effort to ensure social distancing will extend to other aspects of the school day as well including cafeteria and recess schedules, and what student activities will be discouraged, such as close reading circles, because of their inherent inability to promote social distancing. Throughout our school facilities, all faculty and staff and all visitors will be required to wear face coverings, unless doing so would inhibit individual health as per CDC recommendations. Students will be strongly encouraged to wear face coverings and will be required to do so when social distancing cannot be maintained, whether that be in the classroom or in the hallways or in between bells. It was the first time I really thought, wow, you know, it's not going to look like normal in the fall again, right. too. It's going to be a totally different type of school year. We're going to have to take this seriously for a while. I think sc- um, but, now, that's but, not to say that the kids won't go back to school, but it's going to look different. You saw Scott's comments. He goes, 
look, we got to try and, and, and manage this for six, six more months in his view. And that's, a, to, that's yeah. a total uh, hypothetical. That's counting on science, counting on uh, clinical trials, counting on. I mean, I know you saw the news in China that they're already uh, the military is getting a vaccine Working, that they think yeah. is safe and, and might work. Right. So there's a lot of uh, a lot of hope that we have no idea whether that's going to be the case. But once again, I mean, the futures are crazy. I'm not sure what needs a reality check. I don't know whether the market needs a reality check or whether the coverage of COVID and, and the hyperbolic sort of coverage needs a reality. I, I don't know. And, no, and I actually won't know for a couple of weeks. Yet. No, but I thought we would be I, I, I thought we'd be up this morning. Joe, I contend they're two. They're two. They're to some degree. They're two separate. I mean, they're, they're obviously connected. I don't want to say they're separate, but they they are in terms of the markets thinking about the world and they're not thinking about lives, as we all know, 12 months from now. And so if you believe the six month uh, calculation that Scott is uh, Dr. Gottlieb is making, that might make sense. At the same time, if you think the headlines, I wouldn't contend they're hyperbolic. But if you given the fact that we have more hospitalizations and potentially and I think we don't know what the next 10 days are going to look like in terms of deaths and whatnot. But, but um, much lower death rates. Those headlines much on that side. Much lower death right? rates that, that we and don't so, really talk about. Uh, and much. hopefully they'll be. And hopefully they'll be a lot lower. But, but then at are, the same are, time, are, but, you throw on doc, you throw Dr. Fauci into the mix over the weekend when it comes to the conversation about the the vaccine, and he he's thinking two things. One is that the vaccine is only going to be seventy to seventy five percent effective, which he says he'll take. I think a lot of people will take. I, I mean, a lot of people will, take, will accept. But then he says that he thinks a third of the country, if not more, won't actually take the vaccine. Right. So you're going to have a So the idea of herd immunity, the idea that that ultimately that this vaccine is going to somehow be this game changing uh, situation. It may be for certain people. We can hope. But it does extend out the timeline of what this all looks like. Two grim milestones from over the weekend. According to Johns Hopkins, the COVID-19 global death toll has surpassed 500,000, and total cases around the world has topped 10 million. The United States alone has reported over 2.5 million cases. Americans are watching states across the South and West closely, monitoring COVID surges at the state level. One of the tools to monitor those state numbers is RT.Live. Launched by Instagram co-founder Kevin Systrom in April, Systrom left Instagram parent Facebook about a year ago. The site, which looks pretty bare bones with just a few key graphics, tracks the effective reproduction number of the virus using a value of RT. RT measures the average number of people who become infected by an infectious person. When RT is less than one, the state appears in the green, meaning the virus, on average, isn't spreading. When RT is above one, the state appears in the red, and the COVID-19 spread continues. Here's Andrew Ross Sorkin kicking off the conversation with RT.Live co-creator Kevin Systrom, as well as Squawk regular Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former FDA commissioner. I go to the site every day as I I know, uh, well, Kevin, you go to it every day because you, you've built it. But I know that Dr. Scott Gottlieb goes to it every day as well. Uh, Kevin, uh, just give us a little of the backstory first before we begin. You know, uh, you came having created Instagram. Uh, you, you left about a year ago and then you created this. How did it happen? Yeah, well, what I'll say uh, initially is that this site is a public good. It's not meant to be a new company. It's not meant to be anything other than a resource for people to come and understand how the virus is spreading near them. A lot of people have questions about what R is, and R is really just how many people get sick 
because one other person is sick. It's a great way to track how quickly the virus is spreading. And it's clear that people like Dr. Gottlieb and others have figured out that this metric is really useful in understanding where we are. Just talk for a moment about collecting the data because you're, you're, you're inputting data sources from across the country. And I imagine certain states are going to be providing better data than others right now. Yeah, the data is actually the hard part, which is to say it's unreliable, it's noisy, it's delayed. I mean, not many people realize that the data you're looking at today is actually delayed almost a week, maybe even longer. There's a five-day incubation period, and then by the time you get symptoms and you decide to get a test and you decide to you know, report that test, it's been over a week. So the data you're looking at today doesn't actually give you a, a real a view into how things are going. It's like driving you know, a, a car 100 miles per hour down a freeway, trying to control it by looking in the rearview mirror. That's one of the challenges we have uh, with the virus day, and that's part of why we built the site, because we wanted to give people an insight into how the stats are actually developing with a reliable right. algorithm. Hey, doctor, let me ask you, I know you look at this site every day and, and, you know, you look at Nevada, which is really the worst of it. If you look at this site, by the way, green means that the numbers are going to go down. Red means uh, potentially uh, not even potentially they will by default go up because anything more than one uh, is going up. You know, what do you worry about most right now in terms of some of these states? You know, there's states like Montana, which is actually has the second highest uh, uh, R naught. Uh, and yet the, the total numbers are lower. So I'm trying to just figure out how to balance all this. I should also mention, by the way, New York, my beloved New York, actually tweeted out over the weekend, went red for the first time over the weekend. Yeah, I think the value of this site, there's a lot of values of this site. I think, I think one of them is that you can look at it over time. So you can look at how the states are changing over time. And that, that's very uh, useful to see how the epidemic's being um, is coursing in different states. They're, they're trying to also smooth out the data. They talk, uh, Kevin talked about the difficulties with the reporting. They're trying to smooth out um, the variability in the reporting. And the other thing to remember about this site is we talked initially during this uh, epidemic back in January and February about the r naught. how many new infections you get for every infection that occurs. That has to do with just the dynamics of the virus itself. This is looking at RT. This is looking at the rate of transmission um, of the virus now. So it's taking into consideration things like the fact that you have um, mounting cases in New York already. So you have a lot of, you've already had a lot of people exposed to the virus in New York. So the rate of transmission is going to be less in New York because a lot of people are immune to it. So it's taking into effect that dynamic impact of the virus as it spreads through a population. Kevin, in terms of just looking at the chart today, what states are you most worried about? And are there states that are in the green now that or that have turned just in the red like New York? Does that make you worry more or not? Well, here's what I'm really worried about. About two months ago, you had 34 states above 1.0. And I'm sorry, right now you have 34 states above 1.0. And two months ago, that number was only five. So you have an incredible rebound. I mean, people like to say we're not in a second wave. I don't know what a second wave if, if that's not a second wave. But Connecticut, Massachusetts, and D.C. have all done a tremendous job. Florida and Texas, two of the most populous states in the union, right, have an enormous infection, and it's growing. Florida at 1.4 and Texas at 1.25. California, even, even though it's seeing record numbers, actually, I worry less about California. 
because the testing has has increased so much. One of the reasons you're seeing so many more positives is because they're testing so much more. At the same time, California itself actually has a bit of a second wave, although far less serious than something like Florida and Texas. But backing all the way up, this is one metric of many that you should use to understand whether or not the virus is spreading quickly in your state. There are many other sites you should go to, and then you triangulate among all of them how you think things are going. And hopefully policymakers are doing that as well. Well, let me ask you, Kevin, what other sites would you recommend for, for, the, for those out there uninitiated? And maybe Dr. Scott Gottlieb can speak to this, too. What are the sites that you would be going to every single day to try to understand where we really are? Well, first and foremost, I'd say your state uh, Department of Health. So every state, the place where we get this data is through something called covidtracking.com. You can go there. And they collect from your state. So if you go to your state and you type in Massachusetts Department of Health, you'll actually be able to see the stats for your state, the raw stats, see all the graphs. Washington has a great uh, site that you can go to if you live there. And I'm sure, you know, wherever you live, there's a great site. So go there. The other ones are COVID Act Now. If you type that into Google, you can find their website. Uh, And epiforecasts.io is another one. And we linked that in the footer of our site. My point is, check lots of sites, triangulate for yourself, because these are all models. And as any doctor will tell you, models are only so good. And what you need to be able to do is triangulate between them. I think the value of a site like rt.live is it's giving you an indication of what the new cases are telling you. It's very hard to just interpret from new cases being reported on a daily basis what that means with respect to whether or not the epidemic's expanding and how quickly it's expanding, because there's a lot of noise um, in the data that gets reported daily. So RT.Live helps smooth that out and give you an indication whether or not the epidemic's expanding based on the reports of new cases. The other thing I'd be watching very closely is hospitalizations. It's a lagging indicator um, because it, the time to hospitalization is about a week, maybe longer, seven to ten days after you get diagnosed. But it's, it's a good, a hard metric of what's happening with respect right. to an epidemic in a local environment. So you have to look at the hospitalizations in states like Texas and Florida. If you see those continue to go up, that's going to be very concerning. Doctor, how concerned were you over the weekend about some of the data that's no longer being supplied by states like Florida and Texas related to hospitalizations and in particular ICUs? We talked to uh, uh, one of the the big uh, hospital presidents. We realized when we published some data that people were misunderstanding it. And so we took a pause um, in order to clarify the data, actually put back out the data yesterday. So there's really just a one day pause. There's also reports that uh, Governor Abbott in Texas seem to suggest that he doesn't want some of that data either out there or, or wants the numbers to look, quote unquote, better. Well, Texas Medical Center has reposted the data and they've put a more granular description of what their capacity is. And so before it was a little bit hard to interpret what their surge capacity really was. Now they've really specified what their surge capacity is in terms of their ability to create new beds. And so the data is by and large back um, to where it was. And they're actually reporting a little bit more because they're reporting their total capacity, how they can expand their capacity. Um, Texas doesn't report daily new hospitalizations. They just report total hospitalizations. So it's hard to get a clear picture of what's happening on a day-to-day basis because you don't know how many discharges there are. Florida also doesn't report daily hospitalizations. So you have to look at counties like Miami-Dade, which does report total hospitalizations and new hospitalizations every day to get a snapshot of what's going on in that state. So there are individual hospitals like Texas Medical Center and individual counties that do very good reporting. But those two states, by and large, don't do very good reporting in terms of daily new hospitalizations and total hospitalizations. Hey, Kevin, uh, you've done remarkable work with this. We want to thank you for being here. Uh, before I let you go, I got to ask, just because of your, your, your former life, it's been in the news, it's all we talk about. 
uh, Facebook and, and some of this hate speech that's online. When you built Instagram, it was something uh, to create, a, I don't know, a safe space, but a, a, a space that people enjoyed. Um, do you have feelings about what's taking place at Facebook right now? Well, they're in a tough spot, and it's not like they don't know that, right? Uh, they have advertisers boycotting. They have users you know, revolting in, in one way or another. They have employees that are very unhappy. And what you find is the, the debate is really, what is the value of keeping a post up? Because you can talk about it. You can debate it. You can, you can discuss it and decide whether or not you want to vote for that person in the next election versus that post's ability to incite violence. And that's a difficult trade-off, uh, as any executive would tell you. And if you can imagine yourself in that, that seat, that's a, that's a tough one. But what I will say is that uh, they've decided to go down a path of leaving things up and marking them. And I think that's a reasonable one. But at the same time, they have to be willing to deal with the consequences of all those users or, who are, and advertisers who are so disappointed in a decision like that. It's it's you're going to be you're going to be in trouble either way you go. The question is, what are the consequences you want to deal with? And so far, they've decided this path, but they've changed their path a couple of times uh, during this. So I think it's going to be very interesting to see what happens over the next month or so. OK, Kevin Sistrom, we appreciate it. We appreciate what you're doing with this site. And uh, thank we you. Thank people you. Go uh, check it out. Uh, and of course, Dr. Gottlieb, uh, always appreciate your insights and look forward to seeing you again. Next on Squawk Pod, Gilead has priced its coronavirus drug remdesivir, but the cost varies from country to country. This is a prime example of the U.S. paying more for its medicines than other countries. CEO Daniel O'Day on navigating COVID treatments in the American healthcare system. We focused on making sure that all patients would have access. Whether you're covered by a private insurer, whether you're covered by a government insurer, whether you're uninsured, uh, with COVID-19, uh, there will not be an issue with access for severe. We'll be right back. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. Here's Joe Kernan. Gilead Science is out with some pricing news involving remdesivir. It's antiviral treatment. Our Meg Terrell joins us now with more. Good morning, Meg. Good morning, Joe. So remember that Gilead had agreed to donate its existing supply of remdesivir through the end of June. So now it is putting a price on that drug. The price for the United States is going to be $520 per vial or $3,120 for the typical course of treatment. That is higher than in other developed countries where the price will be $2,340 for the entire course of treatment. Gilead says that's because of the way the drug discounting system in the United States works. Nonetheless, whichever price you look at uh, is lower than some were expecting of at least $5,000 per course. Gilead says if it was doing its typical calculations on how to price a drug and they priced it by how much they were saving the U.S. healthcare system. And remember, this drug reduces hospital stays by 
four days. They said that would result in savings of $12,000 per patient. So they argue this is quite a discount. Uh, And they note that they believe they need to do things differently uh, during a pandemic. They said uh, they needed to be guided by that principle. They said, as the world continues to reel from the human, social, and economic impact of this pandemic, we believe that pricing remdesivir well below value is the right and responsible thing to do. Uh, Guys, but the fact that they are pricing it differently in the U.S. than other developed countries, probably going to raise some eyebrows. Back over to you. Hey, um, so Meg, I'm I'm trying to figure out whether dexamethasone is a competing drug and whether that that had any um, influence on, on where this is priced. Would it be used in different settings? Is it is it used at the same time? Dexamethasone seemed like it had better uh, actual efficacy, but, but I don't know if there's been comparative studies done. But, but are, are both being used on the sickest patients? That's a really great question, Joe. So dexamethasone, in a perfect world, dexamethasone would be used for the more severe patients and remdesivir would be used earlier. But because of the lack of so many things available and the fact that remdesivir is administered via IV, uh, it's given to patients who are pretty sick already. Uh, But generally, it's thought that remdesivir will work better earlier in the course of the disease. But your question is really acute because uh, I've a drug pricing watchdog called ICER actually put out a new estimate of what remdesivir should cost based on the fact that uh, dexamethasone worked so well. And their estimate came down to $2,500 to $2,800 from 4500 to 5000 if dexamethasone's results bear out uh, longer term. So uh, that does potentially play a role in the way people are thinking about this. Thank you. Hey, Meg, this open letter from the company, obviously Gilead uh, realized that there's going to be some serious scrutiny coming from this. The idea that private health insurers in the United States will pay more than developed uh, country governments. What kind of firestorm do you expect and what kind of pushback do you expect? Or do you think they've laid out enough about why they got to this level and that they've kept it lower than had been anticipated? Will that be enough um, to make sure that it quells any kind of pushback? I'm so interested to see what kind of response we see to this, Becky, particularly from the U.S. government. I mean, before the pandemic happened, drug pricing was a huge issue. It was the biggest issue for the drug industry. And the fact that the U.S. pays so much more for its medicines than other countries, this is a prime example of the U.S. paying more for its medicines than other countries. And Gilead will use it as an example to explain why the U.S. drug pricing system is so complex and why drugs cost so much more here. Uh, it's just going to be a fascinating morning, I think, to see the response to this. Hey, Meg, in terms of total cost for every hospitalization, and that, I was sort of trying to do the larger math on this, um, based on the letter that Gilead sent out, they're estimating that each day that somebody's in the hospital for COVID, it's costing about $3,000. I don't know if that's inclusive of remdesivir. Also, as we know, a lot, of, uh, a lot of patients are being uh, given remdesivir in combination with plasma. I don't know what the cost of collecting that plasma is and then delivering that plasma. Do you have any estimates on, on for every hospitalization related to COVID, uh, what it costs? And then we can try to extrapolate out what that means for the larger costs for society in this country. Um, I don't have that on hand. I know it exists, and analysts have been parsing through that, particularly to find 
you know, what the the reasonable price of remdesivir should be. And when Gilead says twelve thousand dollars, they're probably taking all of that research into consideration. I don't know if it includes plasma. That's a a great question. Um, but we know hospital stays, of course, are, are very expensive. Um, so the fact that this does shorten hospital stays is important. And also, of course, just for freeing up space as more people get sick and go into the hospital. All right, Meg, thanks for bringing that uh, info to us. And all the, the nuances are, are quite a few. We'll, uh, we'll be watching this. Following this news later in Squawk Box, Meg Terrell asked Gilead's CEO, Daniel O'Day, directly about the company's pricing announcement for remdesivir. Here's Meg with O'Day. Dan, thanks for being here this morning. You know, this is a very important moment, both for Gilead and, and the drug industry as a whole. You know, one industry publication writing, this is a moment that could define the conversation around pharma, the pharmaceutical industry's reputation for years to come. Uh, you set this price basically in line, I think, with a, what a lot of people expected. You said it's well below uh, the value the drug brings, but it's 30% higher to U.S. insurers than to government insurers around the world in developed countries. Tell us about how you set this price. Yeah, thanks, Meg. And you're right. This is a very important decision for Gilead. It's something, obviously, we've given considerable thought to. And at the, uh, at, the, at the center of all that thinking, whether it was how fast we put the clinical trials together, the decade-long investment in antivirals, the donation program of our medicine to uh, get patients access to the medicine early, the same focus went into the price. And although this medicine adds significant value to the health care system by reducing the hospital days, uh, we uh, decided to price this uh, in this very extraordinary time in a unique way. We priced it at the value, excuse me, at the, at the, uh, at the price that allows for access across the developed world. Uh, and what we've done is we have one price for all governments across the development world based upon the lowest purchasing power of the developed world countries, and we provided that price to all governments around the world. And that's important, I think. It's our responsibility, and we feel it's the right thing to do. Tell us about your decision to set the list price 30% higher for U.S. insurers than for government payers. Some are pointing out that U.S. taxpayers helped fund the NIH trial supporting uh, the data behind remdesivir's approval or emergency use authorization. Um, why set it 30% higher for U.S. insurance companies? Right. So for, uh, for everybody's knowledge, um, for every medicine in the United States, there are always two prices. There's a government price and then there's a price for private insurers. That's part of the system in the United States, which uh, allows for required and expected discounts to the government off of every medicine accordingly. What I want to assure you, Meg, is that uh, at, at both of those prices, uh, we focused on making sure that, uh, that all patients would have access. And based upon, you know, this price level, based upon the immediate savings to the healthcare system that this medicine provides, based upon programs from the government, whether you're covered by a private insurer, whether you're covered by a government insurer, whether you're uninsured uh, with COVID-19, uh, there will not be an issue with access for remdesivir. I just want to um, focus on that idea that there are two different prices a little bit because you, you are saying that Gilead needed to take a different approach during a pandemic to pricing a medicine. But did the, the middlemen, the insurers, the, the folks that are benefiting from that difference between the, the net price and the gross price, they don't see the pandemic as a time when they need to be thinking differently about drug pricing? Well, I think, I think the community at large is definitely coming together to think about how to make sure that 
patients with COVID in the hospital system are well covered. And that's true from the government programs to the way the private insurers have approached this, to the way the CARES program is there for the uninsured patient populations, to the way that the research-based pharmaceutical industry has programs to make sure that if anybody needs support for their medicines, uh, they, they receive it. So I think the system comes together. The system, uh, you know, is such that uh, you do still have these two prices in the United States. But most importantly, I think the way that we price this assures that patients will have access to this medicine, regardless of how you're covered or not covered in the United States. I want to ask you also about supply. This is a difficult medicine to manufacture, and you've detailed how the company is working hard to increase the supply of it. Uh, now you say you expect to have 2 million treatment courses by the end of the year. Uh, HHS is now saying that they expect to get 100% of your production of the drug for July, 90% in August, 90% in September. Does the rest of the world get access to this medicine? Well, once again, Meg, I want to really thank the colleagues that I had the privilege of working with at Gilead, that uh, from the moment that we knew that this uh, medicine may be effective in COVID-19, we began to ramp up a very complicated supply chain, which used to take 12 months from start to finish. And now, as we enter into the second half of the year, we've reduced that down to around six months. What that means is that as we go into the second half of the year, we have kind of an exponential increase in supply, particularly starting in September, October, November, and December, where of the 2 million uh, treatment courses that cumulatively that we expect to have by the end of the year, you know, more than half of those will be available starting from September on. So uh, in the next several months uh, where we have the greatest need in the developed world where the medicine is currently approved is here in the United States. So it makes sense to put uh, a large portion of our supply uh, to work for U.S. patients right now. And as we go into September and beyond uh, and we see where this disease goes uh, in the developed world, we'll be prepared with a supply that allows us to make sure that countries have what they need. Dan, I just wanted to ask you about whether you'll, you expect to make a profit on remdesivir. You've said Gilead's expecting to spend up to a billion dollars uh, doing all of this investment in manufacturing and development. Will you make a profit this year on the drug? Well, Meg, I think that's a good question. I mean, at the end of the day, we're well aware of our dual responsibility here, which is, number one, to price it for access. We really wanted to make sure that immediately when countries have approval for this medicine, that price in no way got in the way of patients receiving the medicine, which is why we priced it uh, at, at a level for the, if you like, the countries with the least purchasing power and gave that to every price to take away those government price discussions that exist accordingly. Uh, and at the same time, we understand that we're at the beginning of our investment in remdesivir. As you know, based upon the three gold standard clinical trials, this has shown a significant effect in hospital patients. But we want to continue to see how we can increase that effect by combining this with other therapeutics, by bringing it earlier in the disease. And now we're just going to be beginning our, uh, our studies on the in an inhaled version right. of this medicine so that perhaps we can get it outside the hospital. So we're well aware of our total responsibility here in terms of our ability to both invest for access and continue to, uh, to invest accordingly for the future of this medicine okay. and for the pandemic. All right, Dan, we really appreciate your time. Thanks for being with us. Squawk Pod, we'll be right back. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com/activecash. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Here's Becky Quick. Welcome back, everybody. A growing number of iconic brands are pulling their ad dollars from Facebook to take a stand against what they say is Facebook's failure to stop hate speech. Julia Borston joins us right now. She has more on this story. Uh, Julia, good morning. Good morning to you, Becky. Well, Facebook shares plummeted more than 8% Friday. A group of smaller companies organized by the NAACP and Anti-Defamation League calling on Facebook to crack down on racism and hate speech has grown into a boycott of Facebook by major brands. Starbucks, which was Facebook's sixth biggest advertiser in the U.S. last year, spending an estimated $95 million, according to Pathmatics, joins Honda, Coca-Cola, Unilever, Verizon, and smaller brands who said they would pause advertising on Facebook. Now, over 150 50 companies have committed to a one-month pause as part of the official boycott, others leaving the pause open-ended, while Procter & Gamble is just saying that it's reviewing hate speech on all the platforms and reconsidering all of its ad spending. Now, analysts saying that more brands could influence others to join, some of these big brands could influence others to join, that it could expand internationally. And Bank of America is saying that they expect Facebook to tighten restrictions on hate speech and possibly introduce some new fact-checking policies. Now, the growing number of advertisers participating in indicates that Zuckerberg's latest efforts didn't go far enough. Friday, he announced Facebook is cracking down on hate speech in ads and will label incendiary posts by politicians. Now, as brands who are under economic pressure look to cut their overall spending, one question is whether they can realize that maybe they don't need the social platform as much as they thought that they did. Becky? Hey, Julia, just in terms of the economic impact of this, what's the guess at what it could be now that we've seen some of these big brands that are saying this? How how permanent do you think it might be? And and how difficult will it be for Facebook to address some of these issues and, and try and win those customers back? Well, look, right now they're trying to address those issues. They're they're trying to figure out how to both highlight the work that they've already done and, and which changes they feel like are appropriate to make, but just making it look like they're caving to pressure. In terms of the economic impact, I mean, I mentioned Starbucks has about $100 million in spending um, on Facebook last year. Now, that's just the U.S. number. The economic impact will be dramatically more if these uh, spending pauses, if these boycotts become a global thing. Right now, the vast majority of them are only pausing spending in the U.S. So we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars in economic impact if these boycotts are continued through the end of the year. Whether it becomes a much bigger problem for Facebook, which had $70 billion in ad revenue last year, that will really hinge on whether or not these boycotts go global and whether they they last for longer than just a couple of weeks. So it's all a matter of timing and and scope. Yeah, Julia, a lot of uh, Facebook's um, 
appeal is for smaller companies that can't afford the big ad budgets for, for other types of media. And therefore, these big guys are important, but not as important as just all of the multitude of smaller companies. And it's like 6% of revenue. Is that, can you confirm that number? Well, one estimate that I saw that, you know, of that $70 billion in revenue, about a quarter of it comes from big companies and the rest comes from small businesses. So okay. they have 8 million advertisers. The vast majority of those are small businesses. But these big brands account for a meaningful percentage, but not the majority of it. Julia, thank you for that. Well, I was going to ask you before you guys was, do advertisers that aren't going to go social, do they have a certain amount that they have earmarked for advertising? Does it come back to... Well, no, legacy one, of the, media? one of the things you've seen is no, no. But one of the things you've seen is Coca-Cola and all of these other companies who've already been slashing their marketing budgets in part because of COVID. I mean, yeah. you could, there's a cynical view of all of this as well, which is if you're going to slash your marketing budget, what a time to actually get a little bit of free free marketing, if you will, because of all the headlines around this. I see. Well, what I, did I, Barry I was, Diller tell us? Remember. I was saying would, Squawk Box is open for business. I was saying Squawk Box is open for business. Really? Right. I was. Comcast was up on this Friday. Why was Comcast up on Friday? Down three or 400 points on the Dow. Anyway, I, we, are, we are open. We are open for, for advertising. Just think about it. You know, you don't, you don't have to, if you're not going to use social media, come to the real place. That's the podcast for today. Thank you for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. And to get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you listen to podcasts. It's nearly the end of June. Happy Pride to all. And we'll meet you back here tomorrow. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.